Over the last decade, a new product has stormed the market. Over 26 million sold. I'm talking about Ancestry DNA kits. You know, those kits where you take a swab, swab the inside of your cheek, put it in a vial and send it off to some lab somewhere. And a few weeks later, you get a packet and it tells you a whole bunch of things about you. It tells you if you're 12% Scottish or 18% Cherokee or 16% Ethiopian, etc., etc. Some of these DNA test kits even claim to scan for future health risks. One company offers supplement plans tailored to your specific genetics. Another company analyzes your DNA and taste preferences to suggest wines perfectly paired for you. You see, what makes these strange little saliva kits so popular? Spencer Wells, a geneticist and arguably the man who founded the DNA test kit industry, says this. He says that, these, that your DNA is kind of like an incredible, illuminated manuscript that you are unable to read. He says, you know that it holds all of the secrets about who you are, where you came from, and where you might be going. But you can't read it. We are helping you to read it so that you understand what it means. You see, the DNA test kit industry has tapped into one of our most fundamental longings to know at a deep level who we are. And they promise these DNA kits to help us understand who we are. And if we truly understand who we are, these kits suggest, then we will change how we live. If we truly understand who we are, we will change how we live. What I want to suggest to you, in a similar way, Peter is going to show us that understanding who we are as Christians fundamentally and totally changes how we live. Peter's going to show us that the secret to finding our identity does not come from an expensive DNA kit, but it comes from listening to what God has said about who you are. Christians live differently because they understand their God-given identity. That is the central premise of the text we are about to read. As we've been talking all week, we've seen over and over again that the original readers of this text, first century Christians, were people who struggled with their identity. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were a religious minority surrounded by a majority culture that didn't think much of them or their religion. And they were tempted to conform to the culture around them. Similarly, today, Christians need to embrace their God-given identity instead of conforming to the identity that the culture wants to give us, instead of finding our identity in the same ways the culture does. And as we understand our God-given identity, we are motivated, empowered, enabled to live differently. That's the central premise we're going to see as we look together at 1 Peter chapter 2. Follow along with me in your packet as I read it, page 14.
As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that as we consider your word this morning, that grace and peace would be multiplied to us. As we consider even over the last few days how our trials and sufferings and difficulties are varied and numerous, help us to remember that in spite of those trials, eternity is far longer than the temporary things we suffer in this world. Help us, God, to set our mind this morning in these few moments on imperishable, eternal, everlasting things. Keep us from distractions, Lord, and help us to long for and crave the pure spiritual milk of your word. We pray you would feed us on your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna see as we walk through this text, Peter's gonna show us three sets of pictures for what it means for a Christian, for an elect exile to have an identity that is radically countercultural. You see them printed for you on your handout. Three sort of couplets of illustrations, of pictures. The first one we see in the text is temple and priest. Look with me at this, temple and priest. You see, the images that Peter's going to use here for temples and priests and many of these other images, they're images that would have been very clear to first century readers of this text. But perhaps for you and I, these images sound fairly foreign. Right? If I told you, you are a priest, you're like, okay. Whatever. Like, what does that even mean? We don't really grasp them very deeply, but these images are rich and beautiful Old Testament images that, what, that Peter applies to first century Christians living in a pagan culture. What Peter is doing here, you can think about it like this. He is taking us to the buffet of what it means to be a Christian. He's giving us a guided tour along the buffet of all these delicious delicacies, these amazing things of what it means to be a Christian. And it's, it's an amazing thing. We also need to note something else about these images. Notice these images, they're not primarily individualistic. 
Rather, they describe a community, the whole church. Look at the images there. Temple, race, priesthood, nation. These are groups. You see, this means Christian identity cannot and must not be understood primarily individualistically, but it must be understood corporately. See, Christian identity cannot be understood outside of Christian community. This is why it is so important that Christians are a part of a local church, a body. We're part of a community of God. We don't inhabit Christian identity on our own, but we do it together. We do it together, and the first thing we see as we understand Christian identity together, we see that Christians are a temple, or they're part of a temple. Did you notice in the passage we just read all the references to stones? Look with me at the text. Cornerstone, stone, rock. Eight different times in this passage there are references to stones. Why all the references to sedimentary rocks? Well, verse 5 clues you in on what Peter is doing here. He says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, the reference to stone helps us understand the bigger picture of what God is doing here. God is building a spiritual house or a temple. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple was the center of worship. It was the place that God uniquely and specially dwelt among his people. And he's saying here that God is building a temple, but he's not building a physical temple anymore. He's building a spiritual temple. He's not building a temple through stones, through physical rocks, but he's building a temple through people. He's not building with lifeless stones anymore, but he's building, even the text shows us, living stones. The temple is no longer physical, but it is spiritual people. God is building his new temple, and he's building it, as we saw in the text and as we sung this morning, around the cornerstone. If you were going to embark on an, an epic building project in the ancient world, there was one thing you would do first. The first thing you would do is you would look around as best you can to find the biggest, strongest, flattest, best stone you could find. And when you found that stone, what you would do is you would put that one in. It would be the cornerstone, and you would build all of the other smaller stones off of the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone was the largest and most important stone in the structure. And the text tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone. And in verse 4, it says, as you come to him, that you are being built up into a spiritual house. God's new home is made up of people who build their lives on Jesus. God is in the midst, even in this very moment, as we sit in our seats here at Dublin Gap, of his epic building project called the church. He is building a place around the cornerstone Jesus Christ, made up of living stones, real people, you and me. He's building an, an epic place where he is going to dwell. That's amazing. You see, in the first century, the, the first century readers of this text would likely have looked to their community to find identity. Perhaps for many of them, what it meant to be who they were was to be a Roman citizen. But Peter encourages them not to find their identity in their 
nationality, but rather to find their identity in what God is doing in the world, what God is building. See, in the 21st century, we often look in different places to find our identity. We're often told that the way we find our identity primarily is by looking at what inside at what makes us specifically unique, what makes us individuals. You see, but Christian identity is different from that. Christians aren't built around what makes them individuals, but Christians rather are built around what holds them together, what they have in common. Christians are called to something bigger and something better. Our identity is not found in what makes us unique, but what we hold in common, Christ, the cornerstone. Christians are being built by God into a place where God himself will dwell. Christian, do you realize at this moment you are part of what God is doing, God's epic world-changing plan, the temple he is building? You get to be a part of that. How amazing is that? Christians, you are being built up by God. That's the picture we see of the temple. But there's another picture there that's kind of coupled with it. It's this picture of a priest. Peter couples these two images together, temple and priest. And that makes sense because the priests were the people who worked in the temple. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Again, in verse 9, Peter calls Christians a royal priesthood. This seems like an emphasis for him. You see, the priests were a special group of people in Israel. They had a special job, unique from everyone else. They didn't farm the land. They didn't take care of the cattle. But what they did was they worked in the temple. And in the temple, they did two things primarily. Two things set the priests apart. The first thing is that priests had a special access. Priests, unlike ordinary everyday people, they were able to come into the presence of God. They had a special access. They could draw near to God. There was little separation between them and God. In fact, one pastor says that for Christians to be a royal priesthood, it means that Christians are the ultimate insiders. They have the ultimate access to God. See, to be a priest means that we have access to God, but it means more than that. You see, once the priests came into the presence of God, they had a job to do. See, they would offer sacrifices, animals, grain, oil, all kinds of different things before the presence of God. And the text reminds us of that. The priests had a job. Look at it, verse 5. It says, to be, a royal, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? See, Christians are people who come into the presence of God cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't offer animals anymore. They've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And they come into the presence of God to offer sacrifices. And they no longer offer physical sacrifices of animals anymore, but Christians offer the sacrifice of their lives. Christians give their lives to, before God. And they don't do it because they're acceptable to earn God's favor. They do it through Jesus Christ. See, this is showing us what it means to be a priest is this, that Christians live their whole lives in the presence of God, and they live their whole lives in service to God. 
If you are a Christian, this means everything you do without exception is done in service to God. You go to church and Bible study to serve God. You do your homework to serve God. You go to a summer job this summer to serve God. When you open your mouth to speak to people, you speak in service to God. When you open your wallet to spend your money, you do it in service to God. Whatever you do, you do in service to God. When you have free time this week, you think about how I can use it in service to God. No area of your life is off limits. All you do is live in service to God. Your whole life has been specially and uniquely consecrated for this purpose. This means you and I don't live to achieve our dreams. We don't live to accomplish our version of the American dream. But we live our lives to make much of God. Your life is fully, totally, and specially given in service to God. That is the call and the joy of a Christian. We've seen the first two pictures a temple and a priest. Now in the second section, Peter shows us a chosen race and a holy nation. Look with me down at the text in verses nine and 10. I want you to notice the most repeated words there. Circle them if you have a pen in front of you. You are, verse nine. You may, verse nine. You were, verse 10. You are, again. Seven times in two verses, the word you is repeated. Peter is laying on heavy here what it means for Christians to be who God has called them to be. These two short verses pack quite a punch. He's showing Christians who they are. And the first thing he shows them is that they are a chosen race. They are a people chosen by God. See, the term in the text here for race, it does not primarily refer to ethnicity but rather the word refers to countrymen or family. You see, the Israelite people were a family of people that God chose from among all of the nations. And we see, as we study the Old Testament, that God had a specific rationale for choosing his people. I printed one text that shows us this in Deuteronomy chapter 7 on your handout. Follow along with me as I read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at God's rationale for choosing his people. God says this, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Did you catch that? Why is it that God chose his people? Why is it that God chose Israel? Is it because of what they had done? Is it because they were special? Is it because they were better than others? 
No, no, no. For none of those reasons God chose his people, but solely and totally and wholly because God set his free love on them. God saves because God chooses. Not because Israel was special. Not because Israel was powerful. Not because Israel was going to make God look good. If you read the Old Testament, you know that does not happen. God saves because he is the kind of God who out of his free, generous love, loves people who do not deserve it. That is who God is. And the amazing thing about the text we just read in 1 Peter is this, is that what Peter does is he says, what was true for Old Testament Israel is true now for Christians. That's amazing. He's saying, God knew you before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, and he freely loved you and chose you. God knew you before time. He knew every single one of your failures. He knew every single thing you have done wrong. He knows every shame. He knows every pain. He knows every corner of your life that you may feel you have hidden from him. He knows it all. And yet, in spite of knowing all of it, he loves you. He treasured you. He calls you, in this text, his treasured possession, his special delight. He chose you, and he loved you, and he has purchased you by the blood of Jesus Christ. The all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God of the universe has set his love on you. He has chosen you. How amazing is that? Christians are chosen by God. But Christians aren't only chosen by God, they are also, we see in this text, set apart for God. That's reflected in the phrase Peter uses here, a holy nation. The word holy means to be set apart for special use. Christians are people God has set apart. They are to be a people for his own possession, meaning they are his property. They're a people in whose presence God will dwell. This Christian is what you have been specially set apart for. See, several years ago, my wife Jenny and I got engaged and we set up a registry And for week after week, my small little apartment got bombarded with wonderful gifts. We got lots of gifts from all over the place, but one gift stands above all the other gifts we were given. You see, the gift came to my front door and it looked totally different. On the top was emblazoned in teal, Tiffany's. I had to Google it. I didn't know what Tiffany's was. Tiffany's is one of the most expensive diamond stores in the world. I actually thought, honestly, that this package came to the wrong house, right? But it was for us. And I opened up this beautiful box from Tiffany's and inside were these beautiful crystal wine glasses. Even today, we still have them. They're one of the most precious possessions in our home. They sit in our dining room behind this glass cabinet. They're reserved for the most special of occasions. They are set apart. Imagine with me for a moment if I one morning took out those special glasses and set them before my three-year-old daughters 
for their morning milk. That wouldn't go so well, would it? It would be a disaster. See, those glasses that are set apart for something special would be smashed and destroyed very quickly. That would be sad. How about this, though? How much more disastrous would it be for Christians who have been set apart by God, who have been made special by him, to throw their lives away, living in the common, ordinary ways the rest of the world lives. It is a tragedy for people who have been set apart by the God of the universe, chosen and beloved by God, called to a special, holy, different life to live the way the rest of the world lives. That is a tragedy far greater than broken wine glasses. You are set apart for a higher, purer calling Christians. So live like it. You are precious to God. You've been set apart by God, but you've also been called to proclaim the excellencies of God. Notice in the text that there is a purpose behind all these things. Look with me at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a holy, sorry, a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, there's a purpose statement there reflected in the word that, that you may proclaim. See, the purpose behind this identity is proclamation. You have been saved that you might proclaim. Salvation leads to proclamation. Christian, you were once in darkness. You were in the darkness of your sin, separated from God. And you were separated from God's people. You were not a people. You were lonely and isolated. But God in his grace has made you a people. He has brought you out of darkness into light solely by his mercy and by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because you have been brought out of darkness into light, you are called to tell others, to tell the world of what he has done, to proclaim. He has saved you by his work alone that you might proclaim his greatness to the world. See, in his um, important book, Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark has a helpful comment on this. He says this, that when we talk about evangelism, when Christians talk about how they talk about Jesus, sharing their faith, they often say things like sharing their faith. In fact, that's a phrase I've used a lot. I'm going to share my faith. I need to share my faith more, right? We often say things like that. And Elliot Clark notes that when we talk about evangelism as sharing our faith, it has a it can have an inappropriate and negative connotation, an unhelpful one. You see, when you share with someone else, you often, you assume that the person who you're sharing with wants what you have to offer, right? You don't share with people broccoli, okay? Because no one wants that, right? You share with people ice cream, dessert, sheets, whatever good things you have. Sharing has a connotation that people want what you have. See, here's the problem. 
for you and, and I'm sure for me, when I've thought about sharing, sharing my faith, see, I'm even saying it now. When I've talked about evangelism and outreach, I've often thought I need to get people kind of in the right frame of mind. I need the perfect moment and the perfect words. And then I can share my faith with people who will be ready to hear it. You see, the text doesn't call us to share our faith, does it? It calls us to proclaim. Brothers and sisters, we're not charged to share our faith, waiting for a receptive audience, ready and eager to hear us, but we are charged to proclaim, to go out, to declare what God has done, whether they are asking for it or not, whether they are ready for it or not. This does not mean we're rude or arrogant or self-righteous. It means none of those things. But it does mean that we are not passive. We don't wait for the captive audience or for a perfect moment, but we proactively find ways to proclaim Jesus Christ to a world that needs to hear it, whether they recognize that or not. We are saved to proclaim the excellencies of God. Let's take a moment and consider how this applies to the world you and I live in today. Not far from my house, there's a giant billboard for Kutztown University. Okay. And this billboard is trying to get people to come to Kutztown, and it says this, Kutztown, major in discovering yourself. Major in discovering yourself. That is the sentiment of the day, isn't it? Your identity is what you discover inside yourself. See, what we've seen from this passage is that Christians don't find their identity by discovering it inside themselves. Your identity is not something you need to discover by some kind of internal journey. But your identity, Christian, has been given to you by God. That is who you are. This means you're not your major. This means you're not your GPA. This means you're not what people think of you online. This means you're not your gender. This means you're not your sexuality. This means you're not your failures. This means you're not your successes. This means you're not what others have done to you or what you have done yourself. This means you're not what, you, what others have spoken of you. This means that if you are a Christian, you are who God says you are. That's who you are. You are being built up by him. You are part of his epic building project in the world. You are called to serve him. You have been set apart for a special work by him that you might proclaim him. So embrace your God-given identity. Do not return to living the way the rest of the world lives, but embrace the radically countercultural God-given identity that you have. Be who God has made you to be. We've seen... So far, two amazing pictures of what it means to be a Christian. And in this final picture, Peter sort of transitions. 
And he starts to answer the question that Mark posed on Sunday night. How can I be a witness? How can I have this amazing identity but live in a world that doesn't really seem to want it? We see that kind of unfolded in this last section where Peter unpacks what it means for Christians to be sojourners and exiles. Follow along with me as I read verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice the images have changed here, right? Sojourner and exile is very different from a priest and a holy nation. Mark defined an exile on Sunday night as someone who has been banished or has fled from their home or native land. Peter is saying here that it is normal for Christians to feel like they do not fit in the culture around them, like they are fish out of water, like they are strangers in a strange land. We see in this text that the images have changed, but not only have the, have the images changed, but notice the mood of the verbs has also changed. We saw in verse 9 and 10 that Peter is telling them over and over again of who God has made them to be. He's using indicatives. But now in verse 11 and 12, Peter tells them how they ought to live. He gives them imperatives. And he tells them this, as exiles and sojourners, Christians ought to conduct themselves in the world in a radically countercultural way. He shows them two primary, maybe, applications from this text. The first thing is this, that they need to keep their conduct because it can shield their soul. See, we need to keep in mind as we look at this text that the word here for passions, it doesn't mean what we often think of when we think of passions, right? We think of passions and we think about things that are exciting to us, things that we're delighted in. And, and that's not primarily what passions means here. Passion for us can be a good thing, but in this text and often in the Bible, passion is used to refer to evil desires, lust in our heart, wicked lust. And in this text, Peter says that these evil passions in our heart Verse 11, wage war against your soul. Did you catch what Peter's saying there? There are evil passions inside of you that are trying to kill you. See, living in a non-Christian society likely meant for first century audiences that the temptation was greater than ever to conform to the world around them. They were tempted these first readers to adopt the same kind of speech, passions, and lifestyle of the ungodly culture around them. And the, the same thing is true today. Today, our culture encourages us to embrace the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh are glamorized for us, aren't they? On television, in music, on social media, all over the place, these evil passions are glamorized as if there's something beautiful and wonderful to behold. And you and I, if we're honest, are tempted, often unconsciously, to go along with these passions. We're kind of like logs thrown out to the sea that just drift deeper and deeper. The waves of the culture push us further and further away. See, Christians, you 
need to wake up and realize that at this moment, there is a war going on for your soul. The passions of your sinful flesh are trying to destroy you. There is an enemy inside you that wants to grab hold of you and drag you into the pit. So you must go to war with the evil passions of your flesh. The passions that lead you to speak unkind, unholy words. The passions that lead you to look at evil images. The passions that lead you to pride and self-righteousness. Do not give in to the passions of the flesh, but go to war with them. Your soul is at stake. So swim upstream against the current of our culture. Don't embrace its passions and go along with it, but swim upstream for your very soul depends on it. We have to keep our conduct because it protects our own soul. But he also gives us another application here. He says you need to keep your conduct because it can lead people to God. You must keep yourself, Peter's gonna show us, for honorable works in order that non-Christians might, look at verse 12, This is amazing. See your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you catch what Peter is saying here? He's saying non-Christians might see the way you live and turn their lives around so that on the day that Jesus Christ himself returns, they will raise their hands and say, man, I saw how you lived. I saw how he lived. I saw how she lived. And because of the way they lived, differently from the rest of the world, I was led to know God. People will say on that day, my eternal destiny is different because I saw God working through you. How amazing is that? How worthy is that of our efforts, of our striving, and our purity? Elliot Clark, again, has a helpful quote on this from his book. It's printed for you on the top of your handout. He says this, Our extended family, friends, coworkers, and children can all see if our faith is real. And one way God has ordained for them to be drawn to Christ is through the visible, observable testimony of our holiness. They need to see we're different that we're like our Father, and that our deeds are good. Only then, as we shine before others, will some of them actually see the light. Wow. This text is saying that your good works and mine are the light through which our friends can see Christ. This means eternal destinies are at stake. I'm not saying that they depend on us. But our works are God's divine means for leading people to himself. You can think of it like this. Our good works are the illuminated exit signs that lead people out of this present darkness into the life and light that's only found in the presence of God. See, this is why we've spent so much time at Focus, and we will continue to spend time at Focus talking about our character, because it really matters how you live. We really want our lifestyle to be truly countercultural. 
so that as we live differently with greater contentment, with different words, with instead of pride, humility, as we live differently, the rest of the world will see in us something amazing. Not that you and I are amazing or anything special to behold in and of ourselves, but that there is a God alive in us who is changing people. So, brothers and sisters, stand out by the radically countercultural way you live. In a world filled with excess, selfishness, cruelty, abuse, and lust of all kinds, live as pure lights in the darkness forsaking what is evil and clinging to what is good. We've seen in these few moments together the radically countercultural identity of a Christian. And I know some of you are here this week and you would not identify as a Christian. We're so glad you're here. Do you realize how much better Christian identity is than the identity that can be found in the world. Do you grasp that from this text? Then the invitation is for you this morning to trade in, to hand over an identity that the world has from what you discover inside of yourself, from what makes you unique, to hand over what, an identity rooted in what you can accomplish, to take an identity based on what God has done and what God has given. Recognize that if you live your whole life trying to find an identity, you'll always be disappointed. You'll feel lonely and lost, unmoored. But this morning, perhaps for the very first time, trade in an identity rooted on self to identity rooted on Christ. If you are a Christian this morning, then I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to embrace your God-given identity and forsake the lifestyle of the world. Live differently in this world because it is who God has made you to be. You are part of his epic building project, the church. You have been given a specific job as priests to live in service to him. You were chosen by him out of his free love. And you've been set apart for him to be something truly special in his sight. And as such, you live as exiles and sojourners in the world. Not with all the comforts of the world, but forsaking the priorities and lifestyles and identity of the world around us and embracing who God has made you to be. And as such, you shine as lights in a world filled with darkness? Would we be people that shine as lights, reflecting the glory and the goodness of God so that others might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray this morning that you would help us to live in light of our God-given identities, that Christians would more deeply and more fully embrace who you have made us to be. God, so often we live short of these identities. Would you help us to live as set-apart, chosen people, proclaiming your excellencies to the world around us? And I pray for those this morning who have not yet traded in their identity God, I pray that they would. I pray that they would give over an individualistic 
self-centered identity for an identity given by God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.